0: Sponsorships for the event are now available. Drop me an email at ted at capitalallocators.com to hear about the variety of sponsor options. Thanks for your support and hope to see you in June. Hello, I'm Ted Sides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Greg Fleming the founding CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, where he took the helm of a storied family office in 2018 to build and serve other families and institutions as well. Prior to taking on this challenge, Greg was the president of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and before that, spent 17 years at Merrill Lynch, culminating in serving as president and chief operating officer from 2007 to 2009. Our conversation walks through some of Greg's career paths, including some highlights from the financial crisis and the Rockefeller Capital Management Business and Strategy, we hit on ESG investing, serving clients, and leadership, and I couldn't help asking Greg about his relationship with a Yankee great Derek Jeter. Please enjoy my conversation with Greg Fleming. Greg, good to see you. Ted, good to be here. Why don't we just start at the beginning, and you can pick where that beginning is and we'll just go from there. Okay. Why don't we
1: go back to law school? Because I made the first of a few unusual pivots at that time that's kind of led me through the career path. And I often talk about that. So I'm at law school in the mid to late 80s. I graduated from Yale Law School in 1988. And I spent a couple of summers working at law firms in New York. And I was still trying to figure out what did I really want to do with my career? And I found out about management consulting, which was a big business then but really just at the beginning of the curve that's taken it into this massive multi-billion dollar global industry and i interviewed with a couple of firms and i got an offer from booz allen and hamilton which was a private it's been broken up since then but it's a private firm that had a commercial practice and a government practice and i was hired into the commercial practice in new york in 1988 and that really took me in a completely different direction in life than if i had started at a law firm which I was considering doing, or gone and and done a clerkship for a judge and, and headed in that direction. And it really was that I found out about management consulting. I thought it sounded like problem solving for companies and I liked problem solving. So I took the offer and I jumped into it and I loved it. And I spent four and a half years at Booz Allen and Hamilton working with companies from many different industries. And it was fascinating and it was an incredible education in businesses, what drives them, what makes them successful. Management consulting is a very interesting business to be part of because you get access to senior management and strategy quickly. And I was the associate on teams, and then I think I was promoted to senior associate and then principal. But you're working right with the uh, senior management. And I did it across many different industries and globally. The world really was opening up at that time too. So I worked in Japan. I worked across Europe. I worked in South America. I remember heading down to Brazil to do a meeting With the team we were working with in New York, none of us spoke Portuguese, and they decided they were going to do the meeting in Portuguese, and we just kind of watched. So you learned on so many levels, the travel, the cultures, the different business models. So it was a tremendous four and a half years for me in terms of really getting me educated on something that I had only had minimal insight into coming into
0: it. What were the biggest lessons you took away from that initial experience?
1: Well, there's was a couple things. And I don't know that I took this lesson at the time, but over the course of my career, kind of lead up. And Steve Jobs famously said, I think to his group coming out of an offsite, we're going to have three follow-ups, not nine, not 20. And one of the things I saw early on was all of these plans that would get put in place by the executive or the leadership team. And it was too much. And you're part of helping them craft it. And you're thinking they're not going to go get a lot of this done. And in fact, they don't. So one of the things I had started to learn early on was be very focused on what you're going to try to accomplish within a company. The strategy has to be tight and clear and communicated constantly, and you have to keep going back at it. Because I saw a lot of situations where that wasn't the case. And I'm not saying that I had that clearly in my head at the time, but the seeds of that came together over the course of my career, where later on you you see this is why some companies are very successful and this is why many aren't.
0: And what was it that led you to make a change after that experience?
1: I thoroughly enjoyed the work and the exposure and the coming up with solutions to problems and presenting it to the clients. But then they went to do it or not. And I started wanting to do it. And I wanted to be closer to being in control of it. So I got a call from Merrill Lynch, which at the time was really starting to expand its wings beyond just retail into being a broad-based financial services company and and a big name in 1992. And I went and I joined in late 1992. And I thought this would be an opportunity for me to get closer to doing it myself and being one step closer to being the decision maker.
0: We'll have to get to the financial crisis, but that was sometime later. So what was the sort of soundbite from 1992 in your path up until when you were sitting in the room when it happened in 08? You know, Ted, one of
1: the sound bites was that I joined the financial institutions group pretty quickly after being at Merrill. It was a couple of years, but that's really the path that I ended up on. And I got significant exposure to asset management. I started covering them from an investment banking standpoint and also wealth management because the asset management companies were generating a lot of their assets through retail system. And Merrill had the biggest and one of the best. So those two businesses became a cornerstone businesses for me in terms of understanding and having clients and operating them. They're very important to Merrill Lynch as a principal. So the knowledge about financial institutions and the career path I took through financial institutions, eventually I moved over to the management side and I ran U.S. financial institutions, global, then I became head of investment banking and then co-head of the institutional business. But that path was partly set by my insight into financial services companies. And that's one reason why I was at the table in 2008, making big decisions about Merrill. We ended up at that time owning 49% of BlackRock, and I went on the board. So I had intimate insight into BlackRock going into the crisis, which was a big asset for Merrill Lynch. I knew the wealth management business because I'd been dealing with the people there for years, financial advisors, and who were selling a lot of the asset management company's products, who I was covering on the banking side. So being front and center in terms of what was going to happen to the company was partly that I was president and partly that I knew these businesses.
0: If you took that thread from your Booz Allen experience and this sort of getting the right focus, a lot of, you think of asset managers in particular, are not known for managing people well. Where did you see that succeed and then fall short, that idea of sort of having the right focus from a business lens?
1: People-intensive businesses often make the mistake of taking the producers, the people that are generating the revenues in one sense or another, whether in asset management, it's portfolio managers and investment people. In wealth management, it's private wealth advisors. In investment banking, it's investment bankers. And then assuming they can be great leaders because they've done their craft very well. And the skill set is often so different. Investment banking is the starkest example because some of the greatest bankers are really good at covering a set of clients and doing a lot of business with those clients and obsessively working with those clients. But that skill set doesn't translate to motivating large groups of people all the time. And because of that, you end up with companies that promote people who really should have stayed on the business side into leadership, and then they struggle. And then there are companies that make good decisions about who the leadership should be. BlackRock's a good example of great leadership. Larry Fink, he's a really good leader both strategically in terms of where they should go and putting people in the right seats and motivating them. And that's one reason why that firm has done as well as it has. It's not just investment performance or buying iShares at the right time. It's, a lot of it is in the management and leadership of that firm. And that's a positive example. There are many on the other side that might have been bigger or better positioned and over the years fell by the wayside.
0: So let's go to the financial crisis. There's been plenty written... How about your own experience and some of the things you remember most and took away from those treacherous times?
1: One of the things that I learned during that time, this is clearly a life lesson, and I talked to my children who are 23, 21, and 19 about this. There were times during that period where you're wondering, where did everybody go and how do we end up in this position? Because when I was made co-president in 2007, I was the youngest president, I think, in the history of Merrill Lynch. And by the time we were in the middle of this crisis, a lot of leadership change had occurred around us. Things were happening that virtually nobody in the industry had predicted, and the decisions were now in and around my hands. And what I say as a life lesson is things haven't been actually around that long. And if you're waiting to look around the room and say, well, who's got the answer here? Oftentimes, there isn't going to be somebody saying, this is the answer. You're the president of a 94-year-old company with a spectacular brand name. There are 65,000 employees. You've been raising capital with companies that you respect, and you don't want that capital to be at risk. We raised a lot of capital at Merrill in the 07, 08 timeframe, and I was on the phone with friends that were the CEOs of mutual fund companies and asset management companies saying, we're coming to market. We'd love to have you participate in the offering you want to do well by those people. And the pressure of making the right decisions against that backdrop and not being able to turn somewhere and say, okay, who's going to come in and tell me am I right or wrong? It's you. You just have to, in life, get ready for the fact that that's going to occur and you better step up to the table and do your best and make sure you keep in mind what's important and what matters here and what's not.
0: If you get into the granular part of those key decisions, sort of an off-the-cuff question, but You're working around the clock too. How do you keep a sort of clear mental state knowing that like so much is at stake and you might not be at your best in that moment?
1: We literally worked around the clock and didn't sleep for virtually 18 months. I mean, there were obviously times you slept, but the stress never left you. It was almost like being hunted at those firms at that time. And remember, there was a famous piece written by It might have been Howard Marks called Where's Waldo? And they were talking about where the fixed income balance sheet exposure was and trying to find it. You know, at first it was Bear Stearns that was in trouble and then Lehman and all the dialogue around, well, Merrill's the next firm and how much exposure do they have? So the relentless stress that created was every night for a long time on the leadership team. And it was hard to stand back and make sure you were Balanced in what you were reacting to and what you shouldn't react to, and help lead the firm and and exhibit confidence to all the people. You know, it's 65,000 people. And the thing about Merrill that was particularly, with hindsight, even sad is that much of the company was well positioned for the crisis. The wealth management business was best in class. We owned 49% of BlackRock, one of the outstanding asset managers in history. We had a great investment bank, competitive with anybody. And then we had fixed income exposure in a relatively small set of products. But it was big exposure, enough to risk the whole firm. So you had to 60-something thousand people were walking around saying, well, my business and my life seems pretty good. So you had to keep motivating them and keep it going. That actually was something that motivated me in the negotiation with Bank of America. I didn't want to see the firm sold for $2 or $5. It was a great firm, 94 years of history. Most of the businesses were performing great. And actually, with hindsight, it's been a spectacular deal for Bank of America, despite some of the challenges up front. But it was hard to stay steady, to your point, when it was constantly no sleep, stress that you carried that others couldn't see. It was quite a challenging time. I used exercise. I used, I'm close to my family. The kids were young then. They would distract you. Dogs. There were all sorts of outlets. But it was a relentless sense of being hunted. Yeah.
0: Wow. I want to roll forward into sort of your move into private wealth, but I also noticed that after that period of time, after that B of a deal got done, you basically slept for a year. <laughs> so you did have that gap. What did you do in that period of time to kind of clear your head before you re-engaged in the business? It's a fair observation because I definitely, to walk
1: you through the sequence, after we announced the sale to Bank of America – which I'll never forget, on September 15th, 2008. And it actually leaked late the night before that Sunday night. So after we announced that, we started to move down the path of integration. And I went to my 20-year Yale Law School reunion. And the dean at the time was a man named Harold Coe. And I saw him, and he was very candid. Like you just said, I slept through a year. He said, you look awful. You're drained. Why don't you take a break from that world and come up here and teach and write, and clear your head. And I said, Harold, I appreciate that. And he said, it's a dean's appointment. It's just you and me. It's all yours. And I said, I can't do that. I just sold this firm, and I was instrumental in doing it. I've got to see this forward. And then over the next month or two, I realized that it was going to be quite a difficult transition for Merrill and for me personally, because it was a very different culture at Bank America. And look, they bought it. It was a $50 billion transaction in the middle of that time. Merrill Lynch has went on to thrive. The 65,000 people kept their jobs. Lots of positives. I'm not picking on them. But it was going to be a very different firm. And I just decided this is going to be too difficult to transition for me. I think it's a good time for me to go and this to go on. I left right after the new year. And I flew down to see Ken Lewis. And I said, I'm leaving. And he nicely said, we don't want you to leave. And why are you going? And I said, it's a good time for me to go. And after some back and forth, I announced that I was leaving, and I was going to go teach at Yale Law School. And I did. I ran a lecture series up there over the course of the next four or five months, and we didn't tape it, and I really regret that because we had Larry Fink, we had Raj Cohen, we had Alan Schwartz, we had Steve Galbraith, we had everybody that had been around the crisis. And they came and they talked to students at Yale Law School about what caused it, what's happening now, governmental responses. It was a spectacular group of people. So I did that over the course of the spring, and I really did kind of catch my breath. I mean, I drove the kids to school. I was on garden leave. I couldn't do anything anyway. And it was a time for me to kind of recharge. And then James Gorman actually came and spoke. He and I were friends from Merrill Lynch. He ran the private wealth side when I ran the investment banking side. So he came and spoke and he and his wife and my wife and I had dinner up there. And that really laid the seeds. We were still friends for when he was named CEO in the fall of 09. He called me the next day.
0: And how difficult was that decision for you?
1: I had a lot of opportunities that were starting to come together at the time. And I was trying to sort through it. Really, where do you want to spend your time now? I think I was 45. It was a good time to take stock and say, this is really what I like to do every day. Let's pursue it. But in the final analysis, Morgan Stanley was and is a high-quality firm. And I knew James. I knew his values. I knew the way he thought about business. I knew what he wanted me to do. I knew I could do it. I knew he'd let me do it. And it was the comfort with that relationship that led me to take the job. And he was pretty focused on it. I mean, it was he had other deck chairs lined up. This is the one he wanted. But the personal relationship, and I say this often, this is another life lesson for my kids and when I talk to young people, the relationships with people are very, very important. It matters if you're working at Apple versus another company. But still, the day-to-day relationships with people and Whether you respect them and whether you think in a similar fashion, that's a very important part of the way you should make decisions about what you do with your life. So James taking over and being in charge was a big part of that decision. And then roll
0: me through that and let's get into Rockefeller.
1: That was a good lead up to it because at Morgan Stanley, I ran asset management and I took over wealth management a year later, a dialogue James and I had going in. So I ran both businesses for the last five years that I was there, asset management for six years. The wealth management business at Morgan Stanley was in transition. That was another reason why I went to Morgan Stanley. I thought the business model that James had started to put together was the right one. They had asset management. They had wealth management. They had the investment bank. But the wealth management, to me, was a key part of what could differentiate them. And no question it has. Look at what's happened since then. In running those businesses, I really got into the weeds of wealth management for the first time. At Merrill, it reported to me. I knew the business well, but I was president and I had everything. There was somebody running wealth management day to day. So I wasn't as into the granular as I was at Morgan Stanley. So I really got to know the business well. And when I left Morgan Stanley in 2016, I was very focused on creating something like what we're doing now at Rockefeller Capital Management, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, Yeah. go right there. So what we did with Rockefeller Capital Management, there's a family office that existed way back in 1882. It's the predecessor of Rock & Co., which is what we bought, which was the family office of the guy, John Rockefeller Sr., who made all the wealth and oil. He set it up in 1882. It became a multifamily office in the 70s, and that's the business that we bought and closed on in March of 2018. We immediately rebranded it Rockefeller Capital Management because we wanted to make it clear that we were in business taking care of lots of clients. The Rockefeller family, certainly, and they're an important set of clients, but we're in the business of growing the Rockefeller Capital Management across the country and for many, many clients. The vision for what we wanted to do coming into this, and we had this great, brilliant, iconic American name to do it with now, was to create an independent advisory firm that could take care of everything for high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals and families. So we want to help them with their full set of needs, extending across investments, family office services. We do bill pay. We help you with taxes if you want. We have two trust companies. We do a lot of generational work and have for the Rockefeller family for generations seven now. We also have a strategic advisory business because a lot of wealth in this country is created from businesses that families start. And we want to be in the position of being able to provide advice to those families So we've got a strategic advisory business that's alongside Rockefeller Global Family Office, and we viewed those as strategically connected coming into this. That was a clear part of what we wanted to do. And Ted, very few people in the industry have both legs of that stool. The big firms have it, but it's very hard for them to make it work together because they're such big firms. And most of the smaller firms are in one or the other, but not trying to bring it all together. So we think we have a unique offering for our ultra high net worth, high net worth individuals and families. And our notion is to provide counsel to them on everything. So they turn to us on everything. So we even within Rockefeller Global Family Office have something we call Rockefeller Lifestyle Advisory, which is a set of partnerships we have with third-party firms that we vet very carefully that we might introduce to our clients so they can help the clients with something that isn't a traditional need that you would think a firm like ours would provide. So if somebody needs advice from a security standpoint, they might have a child traveling in a part of the world where they're nervous, we have a partner that will bring in and talk to them about that. So we're trying to, for this set of clients, answer any question they have so they don't have to turn anywhere else. And we think if we continue to deliver on that, we can differentiate ourselves.
0: From a high level, and we'll get into the asset management side, certainly in the asset management business, there's always this tension between scale of a business, and at least presumed quality of the product. When you're trying to do that much for these clients, how do you figure out that you can provide all that much service for a growing number of clients?
1: Well, it's a tricky balance. Now, technology, I use the word digital now, is a key part of it in 2020. So there are things that digital and technology allow you to do that you couldn't have afforded to do 10 or 20 years ago. So we actually think that we'll be better than the competition on the way we interface with our clients, our advisors, from a technology standpoint. So the client applications that we create for our private wealth clients that they have on their phone, the private wealth advisor platform that we create for them to interface with their clients. We have our own technology team, most of them in Hamilton, New Jersey working to knit all this together for clients and for private wealth advisors. But we also partner with firms for some of the underlying functions that go into this. And those partnerships weren't capable of being in place 10 or 15 years ago. So technology makes it easier to scale some of the things that need to be scaled if you're going to offer this set of services. The other thing, and this is part of our growth strategy, is you do need to put a reasonable footprint out there. Because we're delivering some really high-quality services, like our manager selection platform. We have a group of individuals who screen investment options for clients in all sorts of categories, and we're looking for the best. We do a tremendous amount of diligence, and then we bring the investment firm onto our platform. If you're going to invest in things like that to the degree that we have, you have to have a reasonable footprint to amortize that investment across. So we've been growing across the country since we bought Rock & Co. in early 2018. We have a significant presence in Atlanta now. We have a presence in Dallas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. We've opened Boca Raton. And the four or five year strategy is to have a reasonable set of capabilities in 10, 15, 20 wealth centers in the country. And the products and services that we have built to serve those clients and private wealth advisors will then be commensurate in terms of the investment and the scale that we're applying it against.
0: So within that breadth and story, when you're going to a new client, what are those three things that you would have taken out as a consultant back in your Booz Allen days and says, okay, here's what we're focused on for you? One of the things I start with is independent, trusted advice
1: and lack of conflicts. We are a private firm. This is our whole strategy, high-end individuals and families on the private wealth and strategic advisory side, pension, endowment, foundation, ultra high net worth individuals on the asset management side. We're not trying to be something else. So for example, on the strategic advisory side, we just worked on behalf of the family, the chairman and the board of Bombardier on the sale of their transportation business to Alstom and also the sale of their commercial aircraft to Airbus and the unwinding of that we're brought into situations like this, and this happens all the time across our families because they already know us and they can trust us on the private wealth side. We're not worried about necessarily an investment banking relationship or fee. We're trying to make sure the right thing happens because we're going to continue to have a relationship with them on a long-term basis. Investment banking typically is more of a one-off and then something might happen several years later. So we really do lead with trusted, non-conflicted advice, high quality individuals. We're as good as anybody anywhere. And because of the trust and the lack of the conflict, bring us in and we'll really help you. That's the first thing we go with.
0: From the breadth of what you've seen on the asset management side, and I imagine you've got a range of different clients with different needs. How do you think about just the investment part of that equation on behalf of your clients?
1: The nice thing about it, we call it Rockefeller Asset Management. It has a long history here in the former Rock & Co. and now through Rockefeller Capital Management. So there's a lot of tenure on the investment professional side. It's a lot of bottom-up fundamental research. It's a long-term orientation. So the turnover in the portfolios is lower. We like all that. It fits with the trusted advisor. We're trying to find companies and opportunities to generate alpha through the cycle. We're leaning against momentum trades, All of that comes together in a way that fits with the cultural ethos here and the way we work with clients. We also have tried to take advantage of where we can lead from an intellectual capital standpoint. So we were one of the first in ESG. Now, the family helped a lot here because the Rockefeller family cares a lot about the environment, what's happening to it, sustainable investing. The Rockefeller family office had a mission fund in the 70s, literally, with family money, that was here. We have a 27 year track record in ESG investing here. We kicked off eight years ago, a climate solutions fund, which is a pure play vehicle focused only on climate and companies that are focused on climate remediation, small to mid cap. So a lot of people are running around on that now, but ours has an eight year track record. The focus on ESG as a differentiator is the type of thing we try to do in Rockefeller Asset Management, We're trying to be thoughtful about getting ahead of where we can find alpha for clients, what fits with our brand, what fits with our history. And this whole ESG thrust that's now everywhere. One of our senior advisors is Laura Tyson, who sat on the board of Morgan Stanley, I've known a long time. And she was at Davos and she said Davos was about climate change this year. I mean, full stop. So now there's a tremendous focus on ESG and climate change. And I'm happy about that as a You know, human being, if not even as a competitor. But for us, it's in the DNA here. We had it. So that focus on intellectual capital and leading ideas is how we offset the scale that we're obviously not going to have in Rockefeller Asset Management.
0: How do your clients integrate sort of that ESG as part of their asset allocation?
1: On the institutional side, they're stepping it up a lot now. You're as close to that as anybody. You're wired in this and the people you talk to. So It's coming quickly on the institutional side. In Europe, there's tremendous momentum, but we're seeing it start to come here. So there, we're just responding and dealing with the classic institutional sales process, and our clients there are asking for it. And we've actually continued to progress how we do it and how we think about it. We're focused on ESG improvers as opposed to just ESG leaders, because we think if a company is making a lot of progress on ESG metrics that we look at, that is often a leading indicator for alpha creation going forward. You're getting them early on metrics that matter now. On the family office side and on the individual side, it it tends to come down to family still, although it's becoming a bit of a groundswell as the younger generation comes up. So, you know, I say, I fancy myself a bit of an expert on millennials and Generation Z for only one reason. I have three in and around my house all the time, and they have their friends from college. Those generations are not going to let go of this. This is really coming in a big way. So we're starting to see that we have a next-gen advisory council here with some of the younger Rockefellers and other clients who get together quarterly, and they talk about topics that are important to them. And then they tell us, this is what Rockefeller Capital Management should be thinking about across all of its three businesses that we are interested in and people like us will be interested in. So the ESG as a thread across the whole firm is something that we're really pursuing.
0: So what are the factors that your team has used to decide kind of what types of companies are kind of good companies in this ESG product?
1: We actually have a pretty comprehensive framework across different industries of materiality factors that we're looking at to differentiate who's doing well today from an ESG standpoint, and then as importantly, who we think is improving and going to do well going forward. So we call this materiality mapping, and it's industry by industry, and the set of factors is tailored to different industries. And it really cuts across the ESG space. So it can be everything from labor relations and employee turnover to environmental footprint, the impact of climate change on that footprint, maybe the impact of climate change on whether they're going to adapt their business model to changing technology and preferences around that. So there's a broad cross-section of Material factors. And it comes down to when you're evaluating whether to invest in a company or not. Historically, it was more balance sheet, income statement, and the kinds of investing that we've been doing for decades. We're now adding in a comprehensive look at ESG today and ESG trend line going forward to decide which companies we think will outperform. Because in the final analysis, in all of our ESG strategies, the goal is alpha creation in addition to the mandate.
0: And how does the team do that
1: work? There's a lot of detailed, fundamental research, company by company. And in fact, we do a fair amount of engagement with companies as well. So Amazon's a good example. We've been working with them on their environmental footprint. We just had some clients and prospects on a visit that they set up, and we talked to them regularly at Amazon in Spain, looking at some of their fulfillment plants and how they do things. And the reason we do that is because we want to work with companies to help them get on a better track, identify companies that we want to invest in because they're trying to do the right things and we think they're making progress. And also we're showing our clients and prospects we're at the heart of the intellectual capital around investing in ESG and where the industry is going.
0: So what have you learned and what's the team learned over these eight years they've been actively engaged in ESG that you see other people kind of just catching up to?
1: One of the big things we've learned is this notion of improvers versus leaders. It's important if you're a leader in the ESG space, because that really can indicate a healthier company on a lot of bases. But we don't want to limit it to that. We're not trying to exclude companies. We're trying to identify companies that are going to improve in the ESG space as well. So we're looking for predictive variables around who's improving in ESG, because we think that's an early alpha signal we've incorporated this notion of improvers into a lot of the work we're doing in ESG.
0: When you layer that into this notion of you want to generate alpha, how do you quantify someone who's improving on ESG as it relates to kind of the old school financial metrics?
1: It's a blend. It might have been before it was the classic financial analysis, balance sheet, income statement, quality of management, things like that. And now we're adding this to the mix. So it may be that if they're improving, And the trajectory is pretty good, but not great. But the other characteristics are compelling. It is still an alpha generation strategy. So you're trying to balance all of the variables. ESG is an important variable for us, but it's in the mix against the others as well.
0: What are some of the things that you've learned and heard from your clients in Europe who have clearly been kind of ahead of this wave in ESG that's just increasing in the U.S.?
1: We think that this is a time when the U.S. is going to follow. It's not always the case when you're looking at whether it's investing or lots of other things in life. But it's so compelling in Europe and so important and now being talked about everywhere in the political realm and that the desire to invest consistent with ESG principles will accelerate significantly here in the institutional space and over time on the individual side as well.
0: So the Rockefeller asset management side is a direct investment arm, picking the securities.
1: Yes long-only fundamental research, bottom-up strategies are here. The teams have been here for a long time. We also have, serving the family office, a manager selection platform with many high-quality firms outside of Rockefeller. Because in the final analysis, or not in the final, in the first instance, for our high-net-worth and ultra-high-net-worth clients, it's open architecture. We're only trying to do the right thing by them. We'll access the Rockefeller Asset Management products if we think it's right for the client. But there's never anything beyond that. We want to make sure that the client knows we're completely open
0: architecture. What's been the balance across the accounts of internal Rockefeller asset management and then external from other managers?
1: The business that we've grown the most since we bought the firm is more external because that's the model they're used to. So If we hire a team from Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley, UBS, JP Morgan, they're used to more of an external manager model. Legacy Family Office was more connected to Rockefeller Asset Management, which was good for them because the performance has been very good over many years. So we're opening that up more for them, and we're exposing the clients that have come over with our new teams to Rockefeller Asset Management. So we're making it more of a blend on both sides.
0: As you bring in new teams, how do you integrate the existing portfolio that those advisors may have had for their clients that may be different from, say, the external manager selections that your team already has on the platform?
1: We typically will onboard the portfolio as it existed, unless there's something that we really don't like. And then we dig in on the diligence going forward. And if there's a manager that we're less comfortable with, we say, you're not going to continue to use that manager going forward. The client that's happy with it now can stay with it. But we try to balance that between being dictatorial as they come over. But we need to be clear, this is the set of managers we're comfortable with on a long-term basis. We invest a lot in this manager selection. It's a very key part of the investment side of our family office.
0: And how do you think about that balance between kind of customization and call it standardization within the platform?
1: We're very focused on a bespoke model here. We want these high-end individuals and families or the institutional investors and Rockefeller Asset Management to feel a different sense of connectivity with us. And this gets to the trusted advisor. So from an operating and financial standpoint, you can't customize everything. So we do need to find ways of doing things in an efficient manner with some degree of uh, standardization. And technology allows us to do that more and more. But we're okay with a lot of customization because, you know, if you're managing 50 or 100 or 500 or billion dollars for a family, they're expecting that they're treated really on a one-off basis. And we need to deliver that. And if we want to be the firm that differentiates that coverage model, we have to deliver on that.
0: When you're out winning new business, what are the aspects of your proposition that matter most to those prospective clients? Is it sort of asset management performance? Is it the service of just the, the bill paying, the handholding, and just excellence there? Is it advisory? Like, What do you see as what people care most about?
1: One of the things that
0: matters a lot, which makes the client feel comfortable,
1: is the environment we're creating here for the private wealth advisors to thrive within. Because the reason that so many people want to come work here and that we are hiring some of these great teams, not some, really been very fortunate to bring in best in class teams across the country is because we've set up a model that allows them to do what they do best for those clients easier day in and day out. It's not a big firm with a lot of bureaucracy and questions around, well, why are you doing this? And sorry, you can't do this for your client because we would have to do it for 4 million other clients and we can't allow that for 4 million clients we're never going to have 4 million clients here. Our clients are all in this segment, high net worth and ultra high net worth. So I'd say to the clients, this team is going to thrive here. They're going to be able to do what they do really well for you. You know, we still have regulators. We have to make sure we do the right things by, and and there are rules here. But it's a more entrepreneurial culture and place for them, and they thrive here. So that's a big part of it. And then you add on what you were describing This business started with investment. We're adding a lot of other things to investment. Those family office services, the trust companies, the generational planning. I was on the phone yesterday with a client that's done a lot of philanthropy, but they want us to help them with a more systematic approach to it. We have a sister organization called Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisory. It's a not-for-profit. They're experts in big foundations, and and they do a lot of tailored planning. If you really want to set up a foundation focused on climate change. These are the things we'd recommend. So we bring them in to talk to clients. So those things are all also important and they're additive. And you can say to the client, this team will have access to a broader cross-section of things they can help you with here than they did even at the big firm, because the big firm isn't trying to provide a broad cross-section of services to these clients.
0: What have been the biggest challenges you faced in your time here?
1: one of the challenges was buying a what was effectively a family office and transitioning that to really a growth company and you have the people that are here when we bought the company and then you're hiring a lot of people and you want everybody to feel like they're part of it so we've worked hard on that and getting everybody feeling like they're connected to the culture they know what the culture is we care a lot about our website and what the website says the mission statement of the firm the principles One of our principles is excellence. I've been on that my whole life. One of my favorite quotations, Vince Lombardi, who said, uh, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase it, we might just catch excellence. You gotta get everybody to buy into that. So if somebody was at a firm that was maybe a, a different place before, that's really good. We want them to feel like they're part of that. We've worked hard on that in the first two years. So that was one of the early challenges. Another positive that I wanna mention is our private equity partner is Viking through their private vehicle, and they've been great partners. They and I talked about doing something like this virtually from the first month or two I left Morgan Stanley. They understand where we're going. They're involved in strategy. They leave a lot of the day-to-day execution to us. That's their model. Our view is that we just need to execute. We've got a best-in-class brand. We've got great people. We have great capital partner, great board. Some of these board members, I'm sure you know, Jack Brennan is our lead director, Andrea Jung, Shelley Lazarus, Arnie Mannion, Paul Miners. So every day, the leadership team and I think we just need to keep going forward. It's The ingredients are there. It's the quality of the execution that's going to drive a lot of this.
0: And where do you see this business five years from now?
1: The soundbite on a Friday evening on what would you want to hear somebody say about the firm? We want to be the premier independent financial advisory firm in the industry, serving through the Global Family Office and Strategic Advisory high net worth and ultra high net worth clients and families, and on the Rockefeller Asset Management side, institutional investors, pension endowment foundation, we'd like to be considered best in class on those clients for those things.
0: So you mentioned execution, and you're in that stage, and you know, a lot of the people I talk to are really focused on managing money, and it strikes me that through your career, you really got to a place where you were a leader managing people. What are the things you've learned about how you manage people and leading a group of people?
1: Leadership is a critical part of what I've been able to accomplish with my career. I enjoy motivating and leading people to a goal. And the most important part of leadership is hiring the best possible people and team and then empowering them to go do it if people are really talented, they want to be able to take something and run with it. So one of the things that I've been focused on throughout my career, and I did early on, even when I was younger and I was in a leadership position and I had people working for me who might've been older or more experienced, the trick was to get them in a great spot, make them feel a sense of empowerment and an ability to go get it done, and then let them do it. And great people will flourish when they do that. I used to say in the Merrill days, That the trick on leadership was to find people that were more talented than you and all sorts of various things, get them in place and let them go do it. 15, 20 years on, I was right about that. And I have so many people around me at Rockefeller and I have throughout my career who are better in lots of different things than I am. And having them feel like they're part of something and we're partners and they have their piece to go drive forward. And I'm not going to second guess them. We've agreed on strategy, we've agreed on milestones. We've agreed on pace, and then it's over to them. You know, there was this great Jeopardy player recently who'd bet significant amounts in the Daily Doubles, James Holzhauer, and he would push his hands out and say everything in. I do that on leadership. I make sure I get great people. I try to position them well. We agree on the things I just described, strategy, pace, et cetera, and then it's over to them. You have to go get it done, and great people then flourish. So one of the real tricks of leadership is finding great people agreeing on a path, and then empowering them. And
0: how about managing those people once you have them?
1: That's a great follow-on, because I believe this, and not everybody practices it. But Ernest Shackleton had a great quote, and he did an amazing job keeping his men alive. Remember, he was the one going to the South Pole, and the ship got stuck in the ice, and he got them all out of there. And he said, optimism is true moral courage. And if you're going to lead these people I believe in positive motivation and positive stimulation. So when I first started really acting in the leadership role at Merrill, it was leading investment bankers. I pretty quickly figured out that positive motivation and trying to get people to stretch in a constructive way was the best way to extend the enterprise. And I remember talking to one of the people who worked with me in a leadership who was more of a, quote, producer, a good banker, and less focused on positive motivation. And would listen to the Shackleton quote and probably want to debate it. And I said, the challenge that you're creating and as we're trying to lead this group, because we were kind of co-heads, the good person goes into your office and then they come out and they feel beaten down and is there a hope here? We can't be here just for the superstars. We have to take people who are very good or good and make them feel great and make them feel the sense of purpose. Otherwise, the collective good isn't going to move forward. So a lot of it is about positive motivation and having people feel stimulated when they get off the elevator. I said this recently in a town hall I did here at Rockefeller. I said we're trying to create a culture where when you get off that elevator, you feel great about what you're going to go do that day. You feel happy to be here and you understand your purpose and you want to help push this forward and do the right thing by clients and you like the people you collaborate with. And you walk down the hallway and somebody says good morning. You don't get off that elevator, go through the doors and say when is it going to be 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or I can't wait to get out of here. People who have that reaction in an organization that doesn't provide positive, motivating leadership, the organization and the enterprise won't thrive as much as it should. And you see that, Ted, throughout society today. Governments, academic institutions, companies, some do better than others based upon the quality of the leadership at the top and are the people who are leading making the people who need to get it done feel good about getting it done every day. And it can be exhausting because you're worried about and you have to focus on others, which is why the individual successful producer, whether it's an investment banker or a portfolio manager, is often not the person that you want to put in a leadership position and say, worry about others, motivate everybody, make sure that the good people really are driving forward, make sure the person who feels like they're not in the right spot either gets in the right spot, or maybe they should be in a different organization, but handling it in the right way. And how do you
0: balance... That strong, positive motivation with the occasional time where something's not going the way it should. It's got to be with direct
1: feedback and straight talk and saying to people, and I've had to do this over the course of my career more times than I'd like, where you sit down with somebody and you say, you know, we've tried to have this work and you've been working hard and focusing on these things but there's really a disconnect here and there's a better spot for your talents and services than here. That conversation sometimes has to occur or you have to shift and move somebody and say, this isn't working, we're going to try this. I think one of the under talked about elements of a great leader is the willingness to shift and to adapt and to move. Now, as a leader, you've got to be careful. You can't be herky-jerky And you have to have a clear sense of this is where we're trying to take Rockefeller Capital Management. These are the strategic priorities to say it again and again. Here's how we're going to get there. But you also have to take feedback from people and look at situations and be willing to adapt and adjust. And some people don't want to do that. After they've been leading for a long time, they start to think, well, I'm always right or "You know, I know where I'm going here. I try to tweak things and I listen to the feedback from my team. And at this point in my career, I'm willing to... Here that this isn't working even though I thought I had it right. We're going to try this. We're going to put this person in charge and move this person over here and maybe somebody has to go. And that constant reevaluation of where are we? Are we on course? How should we course correct a little, maybe sometimes a lot? You have to be willing to do that. When it involves human beings, you have to be willing to do that with as much humanity as you can because you're then potentially changing somebody's life hopefully for the good, even if they leave the firm. And I have people that I've asked to leave different organizations that I've been a leader in who are friends today, who I helped get the next job, who got in a better spot, and who agree that was a good time to transition. You have to bring that humanity to that dialogue though and never forget, even at Merrill I had, there were 65,000 people when I was president and there were 35,000 in the two businesses at Morgan Stanley. If it becomes numbers and people don't matter, then you've lost the ability to lead. You really don't have the mandate in the eyes of the people that you're trying to lead. So being willing to be direct in in the feedback, being willing to course correct, and doing it with humanity and with a recognition that the person sitting in front of you, this is a huge part of their day life. They will go home and talk to somebody and say, "You know, I'm no longer here or this happened, and recognize how that must feel. If you do that, then people do wanna follow you. People know I'm driven, and I want to succeed, and we talk about excellence here, but they also know they can trust the way that I'm going to do it, and that we're going to try to win for everybody, and when it doesn't work, they're always going to be
0: treated as I would want
1: to be treated in that situation.
0: Well, I want to turn to some closing questions, but before we do that, I have been a lifelong Yankee fan, and I know that you have a relationship with, in my eyes, sort of the greatest— Yankee in in my lifetime and would just love to hear the story of of how you got involved with Turn 2 Foundation and got to know Derek Jeter. Sure, I'm
1: happy to do that, Ted. He's a fantastic guy. As good as he appears to the outside world, that's the actual man. And you've been a lifelong Yankee fan, as have I, but I'm going to try to make you a Marlins fan now uh, (laughs) because (laughs) that's where Derek is, and that's where my loyalties have gone. I got to know Derek early on in the Morgan Stanley time. So I've known him about 10 years now. We ended up doing a whole bunch of interviews in front of different groups at Morgan Stanley, private wealth advisors and clients. And we became friends through that. And as you're interviewing somebody, you get to know them. You know this better than anybody. You really do get to start to know the person that you're talking with. So we started to become friends and talk on a more regular basis outside of just the things in and around Morgan Stanley. And when I left Morgan Stanley in in early 2016, Derek was at a point where what he really wanted next was to be an owner. And he was clear that that was on his critical path for post his playing career. So I helped him with that. We started looking at ways of doing that. Over the course of all of this, I had gotten to know Derek's family. He'd gotten to know mine. This is important for Derek and for me, but his parents really are very close to him. You know, I met them and I met his sister, Charlie, who runs the Turn 2 Foundation Forum, does a fantastic job. I do sit on the advisory board there and I've tried to be as helpful as I can in a great charity. And by the way, something about Derek Jeter, he started that in his second year in the league. So right from the start, even before he was the Derek Jeter who gets into the Hall of Fame with all but one vote, he was already trying to give back. So I'd gotten to know his family and they'd gotten to know me and there really was a comfort level all the way around. We had done some fun things at Morgan Stanley. went to an Alabama football game. And you went around with Derek in any situation that was in the public eye. He was as patient and graceful with the, the request for photos and can we have a picture. The impatience, he never showed it. And it's relentless. I mean, he's recognizable, particularly in New York, but anywhere. So I got to know the man. He got to know me. And we became friends. So we started looking at different options for teams to buy. And Derek had some very clear ideas on which part of the country he wanted to be in. And at some point, the uh, Miami franchise was on the market. And we spent a lot of time, talk about getting to know somebody, six, seven, eight months in intensive effort to put a group together to buy the Marlins. And the vision always of the group was that Derek was going to run it once we put the group together. And we ended up with a great ownership group with Derek as the CEO of the Miami Marlins, running all aspects of the club. And that was something that Derek was very focused on, and it goes back to leadership. And he has very similar views to mine on the leadership side. We have a fair amount of symmetry on that as well, including in his office, he has the Mandela quote, it always seems impossible until it is done. So he wanted to lead the organization. He didn't want to have the baseball side. He wanted to lead the organization, and he does. He's the CEO of the entire club. And we have a great ownership group. Bruce Sherman is the control person and the lead on the ownership side. But there's a number of other really good people that are in the mix and very supportive of Derek. It's our third season and we lost a lot of games last year, but he and his team are fixing the club from the ground up, trying to put in place a group of people who feel like I'd describe at Rockefeller getting off the elevator, a sense of pride of working for the Miami Marlins, a culture similar to the culture here with Derek motivates positively, but he sets the bar high. He believes in excellence. This is an intensely competitive person looks forward to the day when the club thrives. And if we can get the club to the level where they win major things, he'll take tremendous pride in that. He works very hard behind this. So we've gone from uh, the 29th ranked farm system to top handful now over the first couple of years. The culture and the way the club and the people feel inside the stadium is night and day. And we're optimistic about where we can take it under Derek's leadership.
0: Great. All right. Let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I'd highlight two. One is I run a lot, although I've started to temper that with cycling, which I love. But I do a lot of that. And then I love to read.
0: Were you a marathon runner?
1: I was. I haven't done it in a couple of years now, but I ran New York a bunch of times. I ran Boston once, which was fun but challenging. And I like the marathon running. And I like the training for it, the time by yourself. Early mornings. You know, New York, it's in November, so August... The sun's coming up at 4.30 and you're out trying to run 15 miles. I like that a lot.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: This isn't a life-changing pet peeve, but my kids and I joke about it. When you have a down escalator and people are standing there and blocking the way and nobody walks, I'll say, why are we all standing here? We can go with the escalator, but it can go a little faster. Let's walk.
0: (laughs) How about in the investment world?
1: Investment world's easy. The pet peeve is easy. You get hired for something, you should stick to it mandate creep is something that that's not the job. So if it's small cap, it's small cap.
0: How do you use social media professionally?
1: I use LinkedIn and my marketing colleagues help me with that. Away from that, I'm not on my front foot on social media from a professional standpoint. And frankly, relatedly, personally, I don't do that much on social media. I do have an Instagram account so I can see the pictures that my kids post but I've never posted a picture.
0: Yeah. And how do you think about it from the firm perspective?
1: I think technology is changing the world at a pace that's incredible. The number of years between an invention being really put out there and half the population using it. So electricity, when you started putting light in houses, it was about 60, 65 years before half of the country had that. For... Uh, Radio was 35 years, television 25. For the iPhone, it was four. Comes out in 07 and by 2011, half the country's got an iPhone and now probably everybody. And the debate with parents is, do they get it at three, five, seven, nine, whatever. So I think technology is going to continue to change all industries at an increasing rate. I think one of the reasons we've had such a long economic run here is because everybody struggles to measure productivity. Technology changes every job, every day. It matters so much less where people are and certainly service businesses. It it will be very important part of wealth management services and even services with institutional clients. I think social media and the way that you're dealing and talking to clients is going to become more and more a part of our business. And regulators will be trying to figure out how and in what ways they allow it to happen because it's just the momentum behind it is huge.
0: You mentioned a sort of a 4 a.m. run to start. What's the structure of your day look like?
1: I like early and I like mornings, which again, the three children tease me about, but I'm up early all the time. I like to exercise before the day starts. So I'm up by five, sometimes earlier, rarely later. Even on the weekends, I like to get up early. Then I might take it a little slower and have coffee with the dogs. And then uh, I bring a very organized approach to my professional life. So I don't forget that lesson that I learned even though I didn't completely absorb it in the Booz Allen days. What are the things that are really important that I as the leader have to get done to move this forward? And what are the things that I've got great people doing and I don't need to get involved in that? So I structure my time efficiently, but every day I'm trying to think about what really matters and what doesn't so that I use the day really well.
0: What do you do for self-growth?
1: You might have seen this piece. John Gardner was a Stanford graduate, and in a 1991 commencement speech, he talked about self renewal. And then he gave that speech in different places, and it's everywhere now. I hadn't seen it until recently. But one of the things that really resonated with me, because I'm 56 years old, is that self growth and self renewal should be a lifelong thing. And what Gardner talked about is being in a room and seeing these executives who thought that they were going to get to the pinnacle, and now they're there at 40, 50, 60, and they seem jaded and, and struggling with life. And some people keep renewing themselves and taking on different challenges. I mean, you can see this, whatever one wants to think about different candidates, there are a lot of candidates for president that are doing it on the late side from a chronological standpoint. So the self-renewal, self-reinvention, there are lots of things I could do better. And I try to focus on actually changing. It's not, okay, I always did it this way. And if it's not really working, think about it and change it and get better. And maybe I can keep doing that until I'm 70, 80, 90, and I can address things that I shouldn't have been carrying along the way these years.
0: What lesson from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Tenacity, and I always think about this in the context of generations, because my grandfather's, my father's father died when he was two in 1935. And he graduated from the second grade and went to work in Maine as a woodsman. Not an easy life, and it ended early. But he was clearly a very bright guy. My mother's father graduated from the eighth grade. They lived in Brooklyn, and he worked in a manual labor job for newspapers in New York and would walk to the, I think it was the Daily News, every day for night shift a lot. And even when neighborhoods became a little rougher, he still said, I'm going to walk. You know, my great-grandmother, who lived in 99 on my mother's side, had a fruit stand outside Borough Hall in Brooklyn and my oldest daughter is working for the Brooklyn DA now. She just graduated from college outside, you know, right there at Borough Hall. So I sometimes say this, you know, people say, well, you get up early. It's the pressure of the job. The generations have laid the groundwork. This really isn't that hard. All the things that I get to do and that my kids are going to have access to, what about, look at those grandparents and my great-grandmother who was so tough and lived to uh, 99. So tenacity as you see it in the people before you. And my parents' uh, 60th wedding anniversary is today. Oh, that's great. So this generational thing's on my mind. Yeah.
0: What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: I'll come back to what I was saying to you in the Merrill time, because it really was the sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America when this was most dramatically illustrated for me. When I was doing the negotiation with Bank of America on what price and trying to get the company sold because the next day we could have been in trouble and all the risks that were embedded in that. It was me, I was there. It wasn't okay to say, why isn't somebody else here? This is a massive decision. And if I get this wrong, 65,000 people could be out of work. So life lesson is somebody is gonna be the one to decide. Why not you? Be ready for it. Don't look around all the time as you start to move through your career for somebody else who's gonna do it they may not be there.
0: Greg, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: You're welcome, Ted. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.